Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Stuttering Foundation podcast, and welcome to our second episode on our recap of ASHA. I'm here again with Voon Pang from Auckland, New Zealand. Welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. We're, we're going to give you guys part two now of some recaps and interesting things that we found during our time at ASHA, and I'm excited about this set, set, set of talks. Yes, there were some really neat ones today with some panels, and we'll get to that later in the episode. Okay, so the first one we're going to talk about was called Stuttering and Psychosocial Consequences of Managing a Concealable Stigmatized Identity, and that's with Hope Gerlach of Western Michigan University. Maybe we can start off by giving a bit of a summary, and then as we did in the last episode, we'll we'll wrap up with some take-home points and just interesting things that we found. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed Hope's talk. You know, I think she really came at stuttering from a different angle that sometimes we don't really think about. And, you know, I hope I do justice with summarizing it. But what stood out for me was that she really sort of looked at the literature from psychology and social psychology in particular and talked about stigma. And she defined stuttering as a concealable stigmatized identity. And I thought that was a nice way of framing it early on. So Stuttering is a concealable stigmatized identity in that it's not visually perceptible, it's variable, and for the most part, for many people, there's a urge to conceal it. So there's a lot about concealment, wasn't there? I, I love that Hope's done a lot of really interesting research in looking at the lived experiences of people who stutter and specifically interested recently in identity and how stuttering impacts our identity in connection and correlation with, with society's views and often misunderstandings of society. So she set up her study to look at a concept in the psychology literature, like you said. So it's really cool to see more and more coming from mm-hmm. other areas and being incorporated in our field. And what stood out for me in the talk was that there was one slide where she had a photograph of four or five individuals and said that, you know, you can see that this person in a wheelchair has a visible disability in the sense that they're in a wheelchair and we need to make accommodations. And then there was an Asian person, a a black person, a female. And for the idea of something being stigmatized and concealable, she sort of compared the question to, well, now, can you tell me from this panel of people on the photograph, could you? identify who has ADHD or who has Tourette's just from this photograph. And I think that really sort of made it quite a concrete example of what stuttering is like for people who stutter. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think there are individuals who stutter who pass as fluent, right? And that that the concealable identity component is is definitely there for them and a a very big part of their lives. But even people who are a bit more overt, there's still many aspects within their lives that they're living this concealable identity, though, too, whether they, they pass as fluent or not. I mean, there are many covert elements to stuttering, even if you're a very overt person who stutters. So Hope went on to define a concealable stigmatized identity as any identity that is both socially devalued and not always perceptible to others, and further shared that concealable stigmatized identities have a lot of unpredictability. Mm-hmm. She called them CSIs. CSIs, yes. Yeah. So in my notes, I've got here CSIs. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So in in Hope's research, she looked both at stigma-related thoughts and stigma-identity-related behaviors. And her study was composed of like 400 or 500 or so adults who stutter, which is a pretty large sample size. It was interesting, though, that she shared 
as a little caveat and a bit of a call to action to the field that her 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 sample was pretty typical of privilege. So it was 77% white, 91% heterosexual, 76% had a bachelor's degree or more. And she was just using this as a bit of a plug to emphasize that we, we have to look at a lot of our research through the lens of understanding that there's usually a whole bigger picture out there and people who are difficult to access because their experiences are slightly different than those who might be in, in typical research recruitment channels. Hope study went on to look at the idea of concealment, and she talked a bit about disclosure and the power of openness. And in her results, it confirmed that a little openness and stuttering gives you a bigger bang for your buck on your reduction in adverse impact in terms of quality of life. So she went on to talk about how, though it's a concealable stigmatized identity, that actually being a bit open about it in small ways can give you pretty large quality of life improvements. Yeah, I thought that that was interesting and and a nice confirmation of that. Yes, and that in a similar vein, the idea of perpetuating concealment or inadvertently perpetuating concealment is not linked to good psychological health outcomes. She shared a little bit about just society in general and their viewpoint related to stuttering the stigma that exists. And she said something that I really love. People who stutter are taught to swim in fluent waters. And that got me thinking a lot and that it's more a matter of people who stutter just trying to fit in and succeed with what society's dictating that is going to lead to better success. And that if we're just helping them from a, a fluency standpoint, just doing things to just increase their ability to conceal their identity, to be honest, then we're just running this risk of feeding this concealment narrative. I think which then leads to more and more distress and poorer psychological health outcomes. I agree. I really loved that metaphor as well, that people who started to do swim in fluent waters. And I think it's a really good one to just plaster on my wall, just to remind myself that actually the goal sometimes is to really improve quality of life. And if we are working on concealment through techniques or just focusing on fluency, then that's, that's not going to lead to improved quality of life in the long run. I think sometimes too, on the flip side of wanting to make sure we're not overemphasizing fluency in therapy, sometimes we can oversimplify the process of being open. And I think remembering society's viewpoint of stuttering and the stigma that exists that is real. I know Michael Boyle's research, he's shared a lot about his findings and confirming that. So having a lens of understanding and thinking about the small steps, um, thinking about creating as many steps as we can to go in that openness direction little by little, but remembering it's really not easy and we can't really expect to understand what that's like. And not force the issue or not sort of push the issue. It's more of an invitation or a bit more of an encouragement that, hey, perhaps this might be helpful being a bit more open, a little bit more open about stuttering. And I think also from past learnings, just understanding that it's not a linear process or a linear journey. It would be different times in different parts of people's lives that they want. They might want to be a bit more open. So it's not that straightforward, is it? Definitely. Yeah. Maybe we can toss back and forth our take-home points for Hope's Talk. Yeah, I think the take-home points was that um, that quote. I think I really hung on to that quote for me where we do want to help individuals sort of navigate society and that we don't want to feed the consumer narrative and that stuttering is a very nuanced condition. It is concealable, it is stigmatized, and we do want to provide as much support as we can and be there for people who stutter. 
one take home point I might have is that I hope that more and more research in our field is broadening their perspectives and looking at neighboring fields. Yes. All right. So the next talk that we went to was a panel this morning, My Story, My Outcomes, The Lived Experience of People Who Stutter. And this was with Vivian Siskin and a panel of her adult clients. I have to say this was my my favorite of ASHA. I thought it was just so fabulous. And I sat in the front row, which I'm sometimes reluctant to do, but I really just, my attention was just locked in on the three adult clients who came on their own dime, on their own time, because they felt that important to help educate other speech language pathologists from their perspective. I just thought that it was fabulous. I really enjoyed just listening to them share their stories. And what Vivian sort of said at the outright was that these are the experts. These are the real experts about living with stuttering. And they still live this real life of embracing their stutter and just finding joy in communication. And I think that was the power of some of the therapy experiences that they had as adults. It was so great, wasn't it? Sure. So the panel, just to kind of set the the stage, each individual on the panel shared their stories shared where they came from in terms of therapy and life, what brought them to their stuttering rock bottom, as one of them called it, and and felt ready to take on this this type of therapy, this avoidance reduction therapy, and then what that process was like. And then the talk wrapped up with some advice to the audience for, for therapists to consider and, and some questions from the audience. And they just really impressed me with how tactfully they, they answered them. So we're not going to go into specifics about like the individual stories. Obviously, that's private and that's their stories. Mm-hmm. However, maybe we could just kind of swap some favorite moments or some favorite quotes. Yeah. So one of the individuals said that it's really important to understand a covert profile of stuttering because he had experiences where as a young person, he was very covert and he could appear to be fluent, but it definitely came with a cost. And I think it wasn't later on until he was perhaps in grad school that it really sort of fell apart and he hit rock bottom. So it was understanding the covert profile that sort of really came through where, you know, it's not just about what we see on the outside. There was just a lot of common themes here that nobody previously had had really said it was okay to stutter, Mm -hmm. that therapists that they've had previously never really talked about stuttering, or they were just fluency focused, technique oriented, let me just get this person to stutter less was, was the MO. And they weren't really looking at meaningful outcomes. And I think that was a really nice shift in theme in this talk today, where the clients talked about, well, I, I was definitely ready and I knew that those approaches weren't really getting me the, the quality of life change that I'm hoping for. And they're ready to kind of be the confident communicators they know they can be and to enjoy communication. I love that that's a central goal in arts therapy is to enjoy communicating. And how do you enjoy communicating if you're constantly monitoring and, and trying to mimic some prolonged pattern? You, you're not. Yeah, it's not spontaneous and it's not joyful. And it's when you're always thinking about your speech and your stuttering. This comment really stood out for me um, from one of the panelists. She said that she got to a point in her life where she wanted to not put fluency on a pedestal. And I think from the therapy experiences that she had, this is a great comment. I've met a lot of fluent people who aren't funny, who don't really engage my mind. And, you know, it's not all about fluency. And I really wanted to just sort of be able to talk. So I didn't want to have shame about my stuttering. I just wanted to reduce my fear. I thought that was a really neat way of just reminding us that, you know, we don't want to put fluency on a pedestal. I think it takes getting to that place where you're no longer chasing the fluency gods to to realize that 
okay, there's more to this experience and actually working on reducing what it is you're doing to conceal actually is going to give you more freedom, less struggle, more more effectiveness and efficiency and forward movement and joy. And the stories that were told hit, hit it home for me that we have to be so careful as therapists with the words we use and the messages we send. Just listening to a couple of them re- remember stories from childhood in particular of therapists that I mean on the surface I don't know if they would have sounded so so traumatic or so so negatively impactful but that's how it was received given the place that these individuals were in and I mean not that I was for or advocating for what they were doing but it's just to emphasize that we need to really be aware of where a client is at and get to know them as a person like we forget the human hat I think I've said that before but it's not it's it's not hard to listen and we need to make sure that we hear people's whole stories and then towards the end of the talk Vivian chimed in with just some closing words and advice, and she challenged therapists in the room to ask the right questions, to think about just not value judging or putting words into people's mouths or asking too pointed of questions, but just open-ended discussions to get people talking and identifying what, 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 what's impactful and how is stuttering affecting that person. So I think one of the examples that I really liked was rather than asking, do you sometimes get stuck? Uh, you could sort of keep it open-ended and tell me about what talking is like for you and really get a story of a narrative about what's actually happening for this person in different components of their life. And she had this visual of what talking is like for me at school or at home with my friends. And I think that was really neat with just getting a deeper and more richer narrative of the experience. I thought it was also really cool and really eye-opening to hear her. You said this in the earlier episode that for her first meeting, she didn't necessarily do a diagnostic and that it was time spent in really getting to know the person and listening to them and figuring out what was important to them just for functional goal planning. Definitely. I, I think that that is so important. I mean, you're, you're meeting somebody for the first time and then why would you just put the recorder on and do a full diagnostic? That's not sending the message necessarily that you were there to fully listen and be heard and, and be there for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so a couple take-home points. My first take-home point is to prioritize the joy of communication, think about communicative effectiveness as a whole, and know that every client's journey is different, but that it's not our job to give them more tricks in their trick bag. And my take-home message, which sort of came home from the panelists, was that I don't want to put fluency in a pedestal and model that chasing the fluency god. And I think if we're working with young people who are very impressionable, um, there's this huge risk with that. So it's being very mindful about that and actually focusing more on communication and, and reducing life impact. Okay, so the next talk that we attended is The Anticipation of Stuttering, a panel discussion on theory, research, and clinical implications. This was a panel with Eric Jackson, Hope Gerlock, Trisha Zabrowski, Scott Yaris, Naomi Rogers, and Rick Arenas. So I think this talk was a panel that looked into a series of projects which looked at how anticipation and stuttering relate to each other. And Trisha Zabrowski opened the talk with saying that this was researched quite a while ago, and for quite a few years it hasn't been re-looked. So the panelists were able to talk about their research interests in looking at what happens with anticipation and how that affects people who stutter, and what we might be able to sort of take away from that with clinical implications at the very end. 
So all of the panel members have done research in the area of anticipation in some capacity. And so they wanted to kind of come together collaboratively to talk about their specific niches within that realm, but and then also kind of discuss maybe some some differing opinions or some 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 different predictions of of how best we can categorize anticipation. So one of the first slides was just defining anticipation or expectancy, which was highlighted to us as synonymous terms moving forward. It was defined by Wingate back in the day as, as a presence of awareness of immediate impending difficulty. The panelists went on to share a little bit about this concept of anticipation. And I think as somebody who stutters, anticipation is just a very real lived experience. I've always been an advocate for, de- for not defining the moment of stuttering from a listener-based perspective and looking at it more from a speaker-based perspective and identifying it based on that underlying loss of control. And so that anticipation, I think, is the beginning of a stutter. And it could start sentences ahead. It can start a week ahead if you have a job interview coming up and to look at that whole moment of stuttering as encompassing. And so I thought this discussion, just from personal perspective too, is so very interesting and really important. And it's not something that you can just see in a clinical setting. It's something that you need to talk through. And perhaps even when you're working with people who stutter, to actually talk through a little bit more about it, because they might not even realize that this anticipatory reaction or response is happening, and that that's going to perhaps affect their speech pattern later on. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody who stutters is is aware that they anticipate. I mean, I think that that's just a very real experience. But I think building awareness of what our helpful and maybe unhelpful anticipatory responses are in how that feeds in directly to both our behavioral physical reactions to stuttering and our cognitive and affective reactions to stuttering directly impacts our our life impact and overall quality of life. So one of the things that the panel was debating between was how do we define anticipation and describe it? Can you measure it across the lifespan? Is it a cognitive construct or is it a physiological construct? And I enjoyed that discussion. But I think one thing that they all pretty much agreed upon was that there are both like sooner anticipations or or um, I think that that was the term actually that Scott used, sooner anticipation, where that's behavioral reactions to the moment of stuttering or struggle, struggle reactions. Mm-hmm. And then later anticipation. So those are more like the cognitive processes and how that interacts with the affective and behavioral responses. So another thing that I found interesting was Naomi's research is weaving in temperament into our understanding of anticipation. And the the lens she was looking at at it from was, does temperament account for individual differences and help people who stutter respond to anticipation? Because all the panelists sort of identified three different possible reactions to anticipation. One can avoid, one can approach, or one one can can employ some sort of physical change. And though they've broken that down and categorized it, it's still unclear why there's such pretty significant differences, I think, in how people respond to anticipation. And so thinking about temperament, I think like a light bulb went off in my mind, like, oh yeah, that's that would be really interesting to look at and learn more about. I think what I really enjoyed from this talk was some of the clinical implications and perhaps thinking a bit more about anticipation and how this can affect individuals who stutter. And the panelists really sort of outlined that the first thing is really to start a conversation about anticipation. 
you know, to do that, sometimes you can use some questionnaires. So Eric Jackson, um, Hope, Naomi, and Trisha, they published a paper in 2018 that outlined how you may go about doing this in the seminars and speech journal. It was called the Stuttering Anticipation Scale that they developed. Yes, the SAS. And I think just to make it quite concrete, they gave the example that sometimes anticipation is like in basketball, you know that as the ball leaves your hand, you know whether it's going to go in or not. And I think sometimes talking about that with young people who started, then they can start understanding, oh, okay, this is how I might be feeling or how I might be um, anticipating. And after talking about anticipation, I think what was really cool was to start outlining some personal and relevant treatment goals. And therapy might be that you want to consider staying in the moment of stuttering and, and start playing around with it. Or perhaps for this person, it might be actually having some cognitive restructuring or having some techniques or some strategies to sort of deal with that anticipatory sort of feeling cognitively. And I think developing healthier responses to anticipation rather than concealing. So some of the things that were talked about from this session really related to Hope's talk about concealment beforehand as well. So in general, we're still very much in the thick of better understanding how people respond to anticipation, better defining anticipation, feeling like this anticipation research is in a bit of the early stages, but that um, it's definitely an area of f future investigation that's very important because learning a better link between the anticipation physically, mentally, and emotionally, um, and how to better address and work on a lot of those elements that 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 are more cognitive in a way that can help us self-regulate and increase our effortful control abilities will definitely lead to better positive outcomes because more repetitive negative thinking definitely leads to pretty significant adverse impact in terms of quality of life. I remember Scott saying that. So I, I was very interested and I'm looking forward to learning more about it. Definitely. I think it's still in its infancy and, you know, watch the space. Well, all in all, this was a really positive Ash experience. I think there was a ton of interesting talks and sessions that we attended. And yeah, I mean, this was our first time recapping. So I think it went well. And it was my first time at Asha, so it was quite an experience, and I really appreciated being able to dip in and out of um, topics that I might normally read about. So things about anticipation, you know, getting a broader understanding of that, and thinking about concealment as well, and avoidance reduction therapy. So mm -hmm. it was really, really neat. Yeah, I like the new era. It feels like that research is is heading, may, maybe our generation specifically, and we've kind of been there, done that on some of the studies just related to to behavioral fluency techniques. And so it's it's really cool to learn more about lived experiences in particular. So those talks, I think, were my highlight personally. And my highlight as well was not just those talk those talks, but um you know, just thinking about complex cases and, and problem solving, just being able to problem solve and hear how experts problem solve and why they might do the things that they do. That was really, really neat to watch. Definitely. Well, we really appreciate you tuning in and listening. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you again next week. Well, I will see you again next week. Voon won't, but thank you, Voon, so much for being here with us. Thank you to the Studying Foundation for making this happen. Thank you. Thank you.